right, I guess I'm starting. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. Um, <clears throat> so, obviously, Matthew 5 through 7 um, is what we also sometimes call the Christian Constitution, which is, I think it's like huge to read this and to actually, like, this is probably like the biggest thing for us to actually apply because um, it, it kind of puts together all of the teachings of Christ. Um, so just to kind of start off, just kind of to have like an intro in our minds. In the very beginning, when God made man, right, he created all of us in his image and likeness, right? And this is a known thing, right? He made us to be exactly like him, right? So the reason any of us could do anything good, right, or the reason any of us are able to do anything that we do is because we're created in his image and likeness, right? Which is something the animals don't have, right? Like an animal, like dogs, you don't see dogs having conversations, right? You don't see dogs like creating the iPhone or creating buildings because they don't have rational thinking. They don't have rationality, which comes directly from God, which is our spirit. So specifically here, right? God, God has been trying to teach us how to live in the spirit. Right, which is basically our proper function. So when, when we read Matthew 5-7, through 7, it's Christ directly teaching us, this is how you're supposed to be as a human being. Right? This, is, this, is, this is what it looks like to be um, a full human being. Right? Someone who, who is living according to the image and likeness. So obviously he gave us the law. Right? And what we're going to find here... Uh, I think we're, we're going to start with verse 17 because we ended on 16, I think, last week. So everyone just pull it up. Uh, Matthew 5, verse 17. And we'll get right into it. So he says, Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I didn't come to destroy but to fulfill. I'm going to try to go literally verse by verse. And obviously, like, I won't try to spend way too long on each one of them because that would probably take, like, a couple of times. But we'll, we'll do what we can here. So why did Christ say this, first of all? Right? Like, why, like he said, I didn't come to destroy the law or the prophets. I, can't, I didn't come to destroy, but to fulfill. As best as I can, by the way, I'm going to try to actually, like, exp- like, actually make it a Bible study where, like, we're actually understanding what is being said versus just sharing only my meditations because... Uh, and I'm going to be, I obviously have like been reading the fathers to kind of understand what they've been saying about all of this. So why did Christ say this, right? Why did he say, I didn't come to destroy the law and the prophets? Like, what was the point, right? So the point here, he's about to tell us something that they haven't heard before, right? Like, I want you to think about this for the very first time somebody is hearing this teaching, right? And they're about to hear something that, that is going to sound twisted to them. Right? Because this isn't something they're used to hearing. The way he's about to teach isn't something the way they're used to. Right? So literally, he's preparing them with this intro. Right? Where he's like, I didn't, I didn't come to destroy the law. Because right? a lot of them might be thinking that. Right? And he wants to make it clear to them that wasn't his intention to destroy the law. That wasn't his intention. Because he doesn't want anyone to be disturbed with what they're about to hear. Because if he had just came up and said, forget everything you know. I'm about to teach you something new. Right? especially because that wasn't true, it would have kind of triggered some people, especially because, again, he's speaking to mostly Jews, and they, the law was everything to them, as we know, right? So people were already suspicious about him in general, because this is this new teacher, right? This is a person who hasn't, ha- hasn't been educated in the way that they were, right? He didn't, he didn't learn in the Sanhedrin, right? This is the, that was the school that they had at the time. So they have this new man walking around, and he's giving this new teaching in their mind. This new teacher giving a new teaching. 
And to them, that's like very strange. Like Jesus Christ is, and they, they don't know much right now. So this is where he's making it very clear. I didn't come to destroy your law. That's not what I'm doing here. And obviously it's his law. He's the one who gave it. Because I didn't come to destroy that. I came to fulfill the law. Now, before we begin, we have to understand what that means so we can understand the rest of everything. We noticed what he's about to do right now is say, and, like, and we'll see this in a lot of the verses. He's going to say, you guys have heard how it was said in the old. Right? If you've met Matthew 5-7, through 7, you, you've, you've for sure been familiar with this. He'll say, you guys have heard what it was said in the old. In other words, this is what you guys have commonly heard. Right? This is what you guys are used to hearing. So, and then he follows up each one of these statements with something to fulfill that law with what they commonly heard. Or in other words, to bring it to fulfillment. So the law of the Old Testament specifically, what is what he's referring to. When he says, you guys have heard of what it was said in the Old, he's specifically talking about the law of the Old Testament. Right? And, he's, and he's trying to tell them, I'm not going to get rid of this, but rather I'm going to bring that to its fulfillment. Right? I'm going to take it, in a sense, to a new level. And this is very important, especially because a lot of people will read, the, like, especially in our time, will read the Old Testament and will make comments like, oh, but it's from the Old Testament, like it's no longer applicable or it's no longer relevant. Right? And this is Christ answering you. He's saying, no, 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 like, I didn't come to destroy that. I'm coming to fulfill it. Right? So, so it still matters or else I would have never have given it in the first place. Right? But clearly, that's not what Christ is saying. Right? He's saying, no, no I, didn't, I didn't want to come get rid of this. Right? I'm just elevating it. And that's the po- point here. This is why, for example, he said in the Old Testament, we, we know, he said, keep the Sabbath holy. That's a law that we're all familiar with. A lot of people might today be like, oh, we don't have a Sabbath. We're not Jews or something like that. No, like we actually do. This is why Asheya actually is the start of our Sabbath. Right. And this is why actually like I, I actually grew up doing this, like where where like instead of instead of just watching random stuff on TV on the Sabbath. Like I remember we would actively watch like Saint movies, for example, because, again, that, that still matters. Like he still said, no, keep the seven day holy. Right. So our Sabbath is actually that like from Asheya. Right. Until the next day, until sun sets, in a sense. And that's why we pray the liturgy on the day. But our Sabbath is now the day where the Lord rose. This is the day the Lord has made. Right. So. Again, that, that, that isn't the point of this, but that gives you an example of like how we think that that is no longer a relevant commandment, but it is, right? And that was why he rose on that day. Well, that wasn't the reason, but there's a connection there. And then I want, I will, I'll read to you with what I believe St. John Chrysostom said. He said, he who adds what is wanting does not destroy what he finds, but comes to f- confirm it by perfecting it, right? So he's saying like, for example, like if a person's coming to remodel a home, right? You don't demolish the whole entire house and start over, but you improve what's already existing. Like, okay, there's a counter there, there's this. Okay, like maybe I don't like that countertop, so I'm, I will remove that and put on like a new granite or something like that, right? They're not just destroying the kitchen, right? So that's what's happening here. It's like, I'm not, I didn't come to destroy the law. I came to remodel it. I came to fulfill it. So verse 18 Amen, I tell you. Amen just means truly. I mean, I tell you, until heaven and earth pass away, not even one smallest letter or an iota that is, that is in, in, their, in their alphabet, right? Or a tiny pen stroke shall in any way pass away from the law until all things are accomplished, right? So basically until all things have reached their end or their purpose. So 
I'll, I won't talk too much on that one, but symbolically, this is what Origen tells us, that the iota, right, is actually the first letter of Jesus, right, in Greek, right? So it's almost like he's saying Jesus is the one dot in the law that doesn't pass away from the law until everything is accomplished, right? Jesus doesn't pass away because when he dies, this is the only thing that brings life, right? So he doesn't pass away until all is fulfilled, right? So Christ here is saying it must and will be fulfilled, right? The perfection of the law will be fulfilled, right? Specifically, he himself being the fulfillment of the law. This is what we don't realize. He is the fulfillment of the law, right? Like this, like this, is, this is what he says, right? He's the fulfillment of the law. He is the new law in a sense. So he's making it clear that he, he does not pass away, he being the truth, right? He being the word of God. He is saying truth does not pass away. It, it can't pass away, right? Heaven and earth could pass away, but truth remains truth, right? Truth, which is Jesus Christ, does not pass away. Truth is always truth, no matter what happens. Even if someone doesn't believe it's the truth, it's still the truth, right? So, and specifically to add more immensity to this, all things are accomplished on the cross, right? When he say, he, what is he saying? He's saying um, they will not pass away from the law until all things are accomplished, right? Until all things have reached their end. All things are accomplished on the cross, right? The fulfillment of the law is actually the cross, right? Because the cross, if we, if we like this, is, it's so monumental. The cross is the manifestation of the law. Why? Because that's where love is manifested, right? That, like, love is manifested on the cross. And, and, that, and that we, we get to know the nature of God himself by the cross, right? Into its fullness, right? So the law, we have to understand this from the start. The law is love, right? The law was always love. And on the cross is where love is shown to its perfection, right? Hence, one of the reasons, actually, one of the reasons why on the cross we hear him say, it is finished, right? Because of this. Because the cross is the fulfillment and the accomplishment of the law, right? So the next verse, verse 19. Whoever therefore shall break one of the least of these commandments and teaches another to do so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever shall do and teach them shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So you might automatically think, okay, what are you talking about here? What is the least? What is the least of the commandments, right? What is the commandment that he's about to tell them? That's what the least of the commandments is. It's, it is the commandment that he's about to tell them. And we might not think that, but I'll explain why, right? The fulfilled law is the lesser one. The reason is, again, in our mind, that doesn't make sense. Like, how is the fulfilled law the lesser one? Well, think about it. To kill or to commit adultery. These are all, right? These are all great crimes. Right? These are all, the old says, do not commit adultery. Do not murder. It says that, right? So these are the first of the commandments. But the least, the last ones, right, are the ones that seem like a lesser crime, right? Such as anger. That seems like a lesser crime than murder, right? Um, looking at a woman with lust, that seems like a lesser crime than adultery, 
right? So this is why he's saying the least of these commandments, because they sound like it's the least, right? For, for these, these, what we're saying here, these are the least of the commandments in the sense that they come after and they have a lesser social punishment, right? Socially, they are looked at as less, right? But what Christ is saying about the least of the commandments, he's saying that a person who breaks the least of these commandments, so the, the, little, the, the, the ones that seem lesser, a person who breaks these and teaches another person to also break them, they will be called least, right? So a person who calls their brother a fool, right? That's going to be one of the commandments we see. The person who calls his brother a fool, that person breaks the least of the commandments. They didn't murder, right? And it seems like it's only a slight breaking of the commandments, right? They just said you fool, right? But Christ is saying that this person is actually least in the kingdom of heaven. Right? And what that means is St. John Chrysostom says the least in the kingdom of heaven is hell. Right? Meaning very simply, just to kind of make this make sense, to break one commandment is to break all of it. Right? And Christ wants us to understand that. Right? Again, because the idea here isn't supposed to be a list of rules that you must follow. That isn't the idea. Right? The idea isn't here's some rules that you must follow. That way I'm happy that you guys are following my rules. No. It's here is your design. Here's how you're supposed to be. Here's how you're supposed to be healthy. This is how you live. This is your true, your true being, right? So, and this is important because a lot of us think that way about sin sometimes. We think that sin is, I'm going to break, I'm going to break um, a rule, right? And that often becomes an issue. Is that we're not breaking any rules. It's simply, you are missing your design, right? And that's why it's a rule in the first place. For example... If you have a glass vase and somebody said, okay, one of the rules of the glass vase is don't throw it at the ground. The reason for that isn't because the person is, is, doesn't like the fact that it makes contact with the floor. The reason is because it will break and therefore it will no longer be a vase. That's the point of the law, right? It's to say, here is you and here is your function. If you don't live your function, you no longer are a vase. You're no longer a human being. Right? So that has to be understood when we talk about the law. Because when we start to realize that, we will realize sin isn't breaking rules. And then we will start to realize, oh, sin just means I'm not living according to my design. The way that God created to me, me to be, which is in his image and likeness. So again, if, if, if there is no... Christ is trying to say here, right? If you break one of them, you're breaking all of them. Right? There's no better or worse commandment to break. It's not like, okay, this one's a better one to break. Because again, it's not about rules here, right? But if you break what you think, what we think, socially is the smallest of the commandments, then you break the law as a whole. Because it's not a rule book. It's health, right? You become unhealthy. That's what happens, right? But in the same token, Christ flips this and he says, okay, but if you observe, so if you do the smallest of the law, so if you do refrain from the anger and you do refrain from the looking, if you, if you observe the smallest of the law, that's also observing the whole entire law, right? And you will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Because what do we say the law is? It's love. The law is love, right? So actually, in the Western idea of justice, this is not fair, what Christ just did. It's not fair. Because Christ is saying, if you break the least, you're considered least. But if you do the least, what are we considered? Great. How is that fair? Right? On, in the positive side. Right? On the positive side, that's not fair. Right? So again, like, we have to understand that, that that's, Christ isn't just talking about rules here. 
Just like for example, the man who comes in at the 11th hour and works. They're all paid the same wages. Again, in the, on the positive end, that is not fair. So we have to try to remember when we start to call God not fair, it's actually not in the negative sense. It's actually in the positive sense. Because in the Western idea of justice, right? Yeah, he, is, he actually isn't fair because he, he actually does more, right? Nonetheless. But we'll continue. I don't want to get into that too much. Verse 20. Indeed, I tell you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, pay attention to that. He said, he said the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. So here Christ is telling them that their righteousness needs to exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. Right? And this is important to understand because at that time, this is very bold. Right? Especially for the people all listening. Because Christ is saying, your righteousness needs to exceed your teachers. What the scribes and the Pharisees are the teachers in the temple. So he's saying, you guys need to be better than them. Right? And in their mind, it's like, how can we be better than our teachers? Right? So this is a very bold statement. Right? The scribes and the Pharisees, they're the voice of the temple. Everyone thought they were doing the best. Right? <clears throat> they were the standard in their mind. But now Christ is saying, no, no, no unless you exceed them, you actually won't make it to heaven. That's what he's saying, right? But what might get very unnoticed here is Christ is still saying they have a level of righteousness. He's saying the, the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. What, that means that the scribes and Pharisees, they have some sort of level of righteousness. But what is this righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees? It's the old law. And that's the issue, right? They were righteous when you compare them to the old law because they were doing the old law. They lived that by the letter. Right? So it's the old law that they were following, and the old law can't make a person righteous. Sorry, can make a person righteous. And that's why he's saying they are righteous. But to add to it, Christ is now saying we need to exceed the righteousness of that law. So you can't just stay at, don't, don't commit adultery, don't murder, don't covet. That doesn't make you righteous. He's saying you need to exceed that righteousness. You have to exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. But also, to meditate a little bit more on them, the scribes and the Pharisees, their type of righteousness was an external righteousness, right? It was a fake type of righteousness. It was a showy type of righteousness. One that wanted other people to see their own righteousness. So Christ is telling us now, your righteousness needs to exceed the external. It needs to go beyond the external, right? It needs to go internal, right? But internal righteousness is not external righteousness, right? So... He's not saying don't do the external righteousness, for example, right? Like he's not saying don't stop the matanyas, don't stop the fasting, don't stop the ascetical works. He's not saying stop those, but he's saying that isn't righteousness, right? The internal behind that is the righteousness, right? So when, 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 a, person, when a person is doing a matanya, right? There's nothing holy about making your body into that position onto the floor. There's nothing holy about that action, right? A person does that at the gym all the time. Right? The idea is, is your soul bending its knees while your body is bending its knees? Then it means something. Right? And again, you, this can be said with everything. Right? So he's trying to elevate it here. He's like, no, don't just do the external. The external means something only when it's followed by the internal. When you lift up your hands in prayer, that doesn't mean holiness. Right? But, but if your heart is lifted with your hands, it means something. So this is what he's saying. Let your righteousness exceed the external righteousness. Go internal. So it's clear by this verse 
that he's not saying the law is faulted. Right? Because he says it did lead to a type of righteousness at their level. But now he's going to, in a sense, make it more elevated, make it more strict in a sense. Right? But if the old law was evil, he would have just got rid of it as a whole. So this is the point I'm trying to make here. It's not evil. The old law was good, but it needs to be elevated. But then you might ask, well, if the old law isn't faulted, like if there's nothing wrong with it, why is it not enough to bring us to the kingdom of heaven? And the answer is, is this, is that Christ came and he elevated this law, but he also elevated all of humanity by him taking on the flesh, right? He adopted us as children of God, right? So now what does that mean? We've received the Holy Spirit, right? So now with the spirit dwelling in us, we're able to actually strive greater than the old law, right? We're held in a sense to a greater standard, but also we're given a greater strength because God himself dwells in us now, right? So we're actually able to fulfill that law that he's about to give us. Now, Christ is going to come in right now and he's about to perfect the law. And he's again, like I said, he's going to say, you have heard, then he's going to follow it by, but I tell you, but I say to you. So you've heard this, I say this, right? In other words, he's saying, this is what you guys are used to hearing. This is what you guys are used to living by. This is what everybody says. This is what everybody understands. And I get it. I understand this is the culture you guys are coming from. But here is what it should actually look like. Right? And he's even saying, like, I get it. I know what I'm going to say might sound crazy to you. But here is the truth. And the truth does sound crazy only because you're comparing it to a diseased society. Right? Like... I, like, I, I, I work in, like, I do, I'm a physical therapist. And when I go to somebody's house, sometimes I tell them about weight loss or diet, sometimes, right? And then I start to tell them what the standard of eating is, in a sense. And they look at me like I'm a psychopath, right? Because they're like, what does you mean don't eat that? You know what I mean? Because, again, it's, I'm telling them health. But to them, that sounds absolutely absurd because we're so used to a diseased type of lifestyle, right? So that's what's about to happen with the law. So here's super something important to understand before we begin getting into the teaching. Christ is saying, you have heard it was said of the old. And he's, the reason he's doing this, he keeps saying the old, because he's pointing out how long it has been since they've received the, the, the law of Moses. He's saying it's of the old, since the times of Moses. Like he's literally doing that. He's actively using those words to let them realize this law was received such a long time ago. And he's actually actively trying to spark their minds to realize, wow, it's been a long time. And the point of this is to say, it's been so long, yet you have been reluctant to advance to a higher level, right? It's like he's being a college English professor, speaking to college English students, telling them, why are you guys still learning the alphabet? That's what he's saying right now. Right. Or like a teacher coming at times of midterms and saying, why are you guys still studying the syllabus? Right. That's what he's doing right now. He, again, the syllabus wasn't nonsense. Right. The alphabet wasn't nonsense. But it's like, no, no, we've moved on. This is of the old. We need to move on. Right. The alphabet was given to you, those of the old. But you guys need to move past this. Right. We've spent enough time on the alphabet. Right. Now you should be on words. Now you should be on sentences and paragraphs. Right? That's what he's trying to do here. Right? And this must be understood because this is what we're at right now. We who have received the Spirit. So that must be understood. That Christ is not at all removing the law or changing the law. 
Again, I will, actually, I want like, to give you a, an, an example. Think of fifth grade biology. We all took biology in the fifth grade, right? It was biology. The subject was biology. But it wasn't college biology. It was still biology, though, though right? So there's still both biology and the law is always love, right? No matter what grade. But the law of the old was elementary school love, right? And this is why in the Old Testament, we realize that humanity as a whole was in their infantile state. They were, they were children. They were young. And you see this even in the way God punishes them. He's dealing with humanity as infants, right? With the same way as infant, when you slap their hand when they reach for the fire, that's how God punishes them. And the way he teaches them is the same exact way. He's giving them something little. Like imagine if I looked at a four-year-old and I'm trying to explain to them the idea of self-denial and dying for somebody. You can't really explain that to a four-year-old. You start off with, look, I know you really want to play with this toy. Let's just share for five minutes, right? That's what you start with. And eventually you build them up. So that's what we're seeing here, right? You, now it's time to graduate from this infancy. So, so for example, to make this in the words of Christ, the old law said an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. That's what it said. And yes, God said that. And we might ask, how in the world is that love? If the law is love, how is that love? Right? But think about it. If somebody punches you in the eye, you could kill them. You have the option to murder them. And that's what they used to do. But instead, Christ is dealing with humanity in their infantile state and saying, okay, let's, for now, let's not kill each other. Let's just be even. An eye for an eye. Punch for a punch. Let's not punch for murder. Right? So again, that's an act of self-denial. You're denying yourself from the will of murdering. So again, he's doing something there for them. Right? This is what the elementary school love is. But we got older, right? And Christ is saying, okay, turn the other cheek now, right? Let's advance to a greater degree of love. So verse 21, verse 22, this is where we get into the bulk of the teaching. So he starts about with anger. You have heard that it was said to you of those in the old, you shall not murder. And whoever commits murder shall be in danger of judgment. But I tell you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whoever calls his brother Raka, so that is an Aramaic insult, which literally means empty-headed. It's like calling somebody an airhead, right? That's what Raka means, right? So whoever calls his brother empty-headed, Raka, shall be answerable, should be answerable to the Sanhedrin, right? The council, I think in some translations. And whoever shall say, you fool, shall be in danger of the fire of Gehenna, right? Or hell. So we see kind of three elevations here. He starts off, right, with the level of anger without a cause deserves judgment, right? So this person, this person who got angry without a cause, they didn't say anything to the person. They just got angry. The next one, right, it's kind of, we're going down a little bit, calling your brother empty-headed. He's saying that person, you, you deserve to answer this to the council, to the Sanhedrin, Right? This person, they didn't stay silent. They got insulted and they didn't stay silent. What did they do? They were angry and they decided to say to their brother, you're empty headed. So the first guy didn't say anything. He was angry without a cause, right? He was angry internally. The second guy was angry and then he was like, you empty headed, right? The third one, if you call your brother a fool, right? Then you're in danger of hellfire. So that's the most drastic of all the punishments there. So this person, they didn't stop 
at not speaking. They didn't stop at calling them empty-headed. So they didn't just neutralize it of like, you're empty. They added something to them. They said, you're a fool. Right? They filled their brother with foolishness. The middle guy just said, it's empty. Like you got, he, didn't, and he didn't necessarily insult. He just said, there's nothing going on in there. Right? The third guy at, put something in there and said, you're a fool. Right? So that's what's happening here. Right? So the worst, right, or sorry, the best case scenario would be to have no anger at all. Right? So I'll give you a, a story from the Desert Fathers to kind of cl- clarify this whole thing. The brothers told a story to an... So there's a, you have a couple of brothers who are monks. They go to their elder. And they go to tell him a story about St. Moses the Black. They say the brothers went and told the story to their elder about Abba Moses, saying, Abba Moses the Black was on one occasion mocked and abused by certain men. And the brothers asked him, Weren't you upset in your heart, O father, when you were treated so badly? And Abba Moses told them, Although I was upset, I didn't respond or say anything. At the conclusion of their story, so they, they finished telling the story to their Abba, right? They asked the elder, what is the meaning of these words? The meaning of the words of Abba Moses. What are the meaning of the words, although I was upset, I didn't say anything. So the elder responded, the perfection of monks consists, so the perfection of Christians, consists of two parts. What is to say, so he's going to explain the two parts. Impassibility of the senses of the body and impassibility of the senses of the soul. Right? So he's saying perfection comes in two parts. The body and the soul. And we'll explain this. He continues teaching. He says impassibility of the body happens when somebody abused restrains himself for God's sake and says nothing. Even though he is bothered. Right? So this person is bothered internally. He's angry internally. But he doesn't respond. He doesn't say anything. He didn't say empty headed. He didn't say you fool. On the other hand, impassibility of the soul is when a man is abused and treated horribly and yet is not angry in his heart when he is abused. Just like St. John the Short. So he gives a story, he's like, you guys brought up St. Moses, let me tell you about St. John the Short. For on one occasion when the brothers were sitting with him, a man passed by and told him off, but he was not angry. And his face didn't even change. Then the brothers asked him saying, aren't you at least secretly troubled in your heart? O Father, being abused in this way. And St. John the Short answered, I am not troubled inwardly. For what you see externally is what you see inwardly. Inwardly, I am just as peaceful as what you see outwardly. So the elder used that story and he continued to teach saying, this is what you see is perfect impassibility. Right? Perfect impassibility of the soul. But the elder continued saying, now, he explains, he's like, okay, now you guys understand what perfection is. But let me explain something still. He said, when you guys brought up St. Moses, he did not yet arrive at the state of perfection. And he confessed that although outwardly he was undisturbed, yet he was waging battle in his heart. He was at least trying. In his heart, he was trying to restrain himself from being angry. So yes, internally it was there, but he was actively fighting against the will to to cuss the person out or to call them empty-headed, right? Yet he was waging a battle in his heart and he maintained silence and was not outwardly angry. So he says, even this was a spiritual excellence. So he's like, that was excellent, right? Although he wasn't spiritually perfect, that was excellent. And that's what all that matters. That's all Christ is even asking is that effort, right? Although it, would not ha- it, although it would have been more perfect thing for him to not be angry 
inwardly or outwardly, this was still spiritual excellence. Right? So the idea here is the effort. And this is what you, you have to have in your minds. Right? And at the very end, we're going to see how this all makes sense. But have in your mind that, this is the metaphor I was always taught, was imagine we're all going to battle, right? and we all go fight. Some people might get shot in the arm. Some people might lose a leg. Some people might lose like some, a, 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 an eyeball, right? And then when those veterans come back to the city, what do we say about these men? We honor them, right? We name highways after them. We put their billboards on the light posts, right? I see that all over like my city. There's always like a picture of them on the light post. We're honoring these men who lost their limbs and lost their eyes in battle. But the men who went into battle and said, whoa, war, and just bounced, we mock them. They're cowards, right? So the idea here is Christ is saying, I, I, under, I just want you to fight. Even if you lose an arm, even if you sin, if you fall into sin, it's not like, yeah, I understand. Even if you're not, even if you're not uh, peaceful inward and outward, as long as you've put in that war, then that's all that matters. A true effort is what matters. So let's continue. Verse 23 and 24. If therefore you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has anything against you, Leave your gift there before the altar. First, go your way and be reconciled to your brother, and then you can offer your gift. I love this, right? Look at what Christ is saying here, right? What is the altar, right? It, in, in, in a sense, it's approaching God. Of course, the, the actual altar. And, and, and take this seriously about the actual Eucharistic altar, right? The liturgy, right? But it's also approaching God, that's what the altar is. And what is God telling us right now? He's saying, if you go to approach me and you realize as you're approaching me, you have something, someone has something against you. I want you to leave me. Like God's saying, leave me, right? I want you to leave me and go first reconcile with them and then come back to me. That's what he's saying here, right? Like that's so much humility from God, right? That's what he's showing here. He doesn't care about his honor here. Right? He doesn't care about his love more than our love for one another. Like actually. Right? And this is exactly like any parent. If you think about a parent, if you ask them what they hate most when their children are fighting. Right? I, know, I, I knew of a mother when she was on her deathbed. The, her dying wish was that. Was that her two sons would make peace. That was all she wanted. Right? And in fact, she was like, like the saints were even appearing to her. And she was fighting with them. She's like, I don't want to leave until I make sure my children are at peace. Right? Because that, there's, that, that's the heart of a parent. And that's what God is having right now. He's like, I care more for you guys to be in love with one another. First, go reconcile with each other, then come. Because you can't love me if you don't love your brother and sister. It's not possible. So Christ is saying, if you remember, there is a possible conflict. If you remember, there's a possible conflict. I want you to ignore me. Even if we're in the middle of a conversation, right? Go love your sibling first. Because the reality is, I can't love God. I can't love God if I hate my brother and sister. Christ is saying, your, your service and your worship, interrupt. Let that be interrupted so that your love of siblings can continue, right? He doesn't say, come offer your gift. And when you're done offering your gift, then go. He's saying, no, first reconcile, right? So take that actually seriously. Pay close attention to this, right? And also point out that Christ is saying, if you remember that your brother has something against you. He's not saying, if you remember, you have something against your brother. 
He's saying, so you could be clear conscience on, on them. You could have forgiven them. But if you remember they have something against you, right? That person has wronged you and you've already cleared the conscience. He's like, no, you go be the one. You go first, be the one that makes the reconciliation. Again, he's elevating the law here. And this should prick our hearts to be like, oh, we have to do this, right? Christ didn't say, if you have something against your brother, but if you remember that, you ha- that they have something against you, have that in your mind. I'll share a story in the life of Pope Krullis. And, and there's actually many in his life specifically that, that encapsulate this specific command. But I'll share the one that was the most power to, powerful to me in my mind. Baba Krullis had a deacon who he'd pray with often. His name was Ammu Fikri, right? And, and he would obviously pray liturgy as we know every day. So there was a time where he was praying his daily liturgy. And this Ammu Fikri told him, listen, let's have an agreement. You don't cut me off and I don't cut you off, right? So like, you know, like how sometimes when the deacon's praying and then like at the very end, like as they're like finishing the last tune, like the priest will just start kind of going, right? He's not annoyed at them. He's just praying, right? So the Amu Fikri was just like, listen, let's have an agreement. I don't cut you off. You won't cut me off. So he's like, yeah, sure. Like whatever, right? So Baba Kulis, he goes and he prays his liturgy. And then it just so happened that he was so much into the prayer, he accidentally cut him off. So then he's, he finishes his prayer, right? The part of the priest. And then there's no response. So he's like, okay, like what's happening here, right? So he looks back, Amu Fikri's gone, right? And he's like, okay, what do I do? So he has a little child come. He has him hold a candle in front of the altar and the Pope leaves the liturgy. And he goes and reconciles first with Amu Fikri and then he comes and returns. Again, he's living the gospel. That's what it means to live the gospel. He's, he's actually living that. Right? And there's many stories of like when people would come up to him while he was going to commune them, right? Where because he knew, he would say, first go reconcile or something. And he would actually tell them to go first. And then he would commune them after. But there's many stories like that. But again, like take that seriously. This is the reason why in the middle of liturgy we have greet one another with a holy kiss. One of the reasons. If you're at a war with somebody, go greet your brother, go greet your sister. Like actually go and, and you could say, I'm sorry, it's okay. Right? This means I'm sorry with her hands, but actively go do it. Even if the person's across the other side of the church, walk over there and say sorry. First be reconciled. Again, we need to take this seriously. Verse 25. Find an agreement with your adversary as soon as possible. Most translations will say agree with your adversary quickly. Agree with your adversary quickly. Even as you are on the way with them to the court. Fearing that perhaps the persecutor will deliver you to the judge. And the judge deliver you to the officer, and you be thrown into prison. I mean, truly, I tell you, you will not get out of there until you have paid the last penny. So there's two ways of understanding this. For the sake of time, I'll only go over one. In the literal sense, which must be done, Jesus Christ is plainly telling us, make up with each other quick. So again, he just told us above, but he's saying, I want you to do it quickly. Right? Don't let there be any time between the fight and the reconciliation. Right? Do it quickly. Agree with your adversary quickly. As soon as possible. Why? Because the more time you leave, the more chance you have for evil to enter. That's the reason. Right? The longer you guys are mad at each other, the more time there will be evil. The more time the devil will mess with the situation in our minds and in our actions. 
right? Like actually think about this practice practically. Like when you're in a fight with somebody and you guys split, split up or you go your separate ways, all you're thinking about is like, oh, and they looked at me in that way and then they said it that way or they are totally so malicious. Or, uh, you just start to start thinking more and more and more and more. And the devil is, is not like sitting quietly. He's actively putting those thoughts in your head as well, right? So what Christ is saying is like before that escalates, before you get thrown into prison, before you go to the judge, before you go to the officer, he's like, see how the escalation, before any of that goes, the moment you reconcile, go say sorry. Go apologize. What our culture will often tell us is cool down, make your separate ways. That's not what the gospel is actually teaching us. Right? He's saying no, now, the moment you fight, say sorry. Apologize, the moment. Right? Because, because again, then it's just going to get worse. He's showing the negative progression with waiting. That's what he's doing by that, right? Things get worse. So there's something about urgency, right? That's very real about this. Because urgency and reconciliation will save the situation from getting worse. Have that in your mind, right? There was never any benefit in procrastinating or delaying making peace. It usually just made things worse, right? If we wait to do good, it means we're assessing, if we wait to do good, it means we're trying to assess whether it's even worth it to say sorry or not. Or who should be the one that says sorry. That's what it means when we wait. We're assessing how the thing should turn out. We're measuring. But what does love do? It doesn't measure. Love can't measure. Love is the moment there's a problem. Sorry. I apologize. It was my mistake. Right? And this is why Christ is so adamant that we, re- that we reconcile in the middle of our offering to Him. In the middle of praying liturgy. Right? Because he doesn't want there to be any time in between. In fact, it'll poison the entire liturgy if you continue to wait. Because it's just adding poison to it, right? But if you pay attention, he's not just saying apologize. But he's saying agree with them. Agree with them quickly. So yes, that quickly part is there. But he's saying agree with them. Agree with your adversary, right? Agree with them quickly. Another translation is a quickly make friends with your accuser. Make friends with the one who accused you, right? So it's not just to say sorry to the person who accused you, but it's to think about what they accused you for and agree with their accusation, right? That's, another, that's a higher level of love here, right? If you've read the, uh, the, the discourses and saying of Dorotheos of Gaza, he talks about something similar to this. Where it's not just saying sorry to the person who accused you, but take their accusation and make it true. If a person calls you selfish, in your mind you should take that and take, that's an accusation. And you think about it and be like, yeah, like actually, nobody could actually answer, actually I have perfect like unselfishness. Nobody could actually answer that. So therefore, someone called you selfish, it has to be true. Because none of us are perfectly unselfish. Right? If someone has called you short-tempered, I agree. Right? Like, like in your mind, agree with your accusation. And, and don't just agree to finish the conversation. Actually find the truth in what they're saying. Like in your mind, there was a fight. They called me short-tempered. Yeah, I actually was. Like I, I snapped there. The reason this escalated is because of me. And now you've self-accused rather than looked at the person and try to find the accusation true in them. Because what do we usually do? You're selfish, I'm selfish. No, you did blank, blank. We, and we throw it back at them. And we just play ping pong. You throw it to me, I throw it to you. Christ is saying, no, somebody take the ping pong ball, put it on the table and say, yes, I, this, I'm the one who's selfish. That's, how, that's the only way peace will occur. 
right? Agree with whatever accusation they have against you. Find the truth in it. Self-accuse. Always find yourself at fault. And always find yourself as the reason for the conflict that has occurred. Rather than trying to blame it on the other person. Verse 27. You have heard that it was said in the old, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who even gazes at a, as a, at a woman with the view or the gaze of lust after her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So, just to clarify very quickly, St. John Chrysostom says, What the Lord seems to be speaking only to men is of equal application to the women. For he speaks to the whole body when he speaks to the head. Right? And this is very true, like in the life of Amasera, right? If you guys know who that is. It says she struggled with lust for 13 years, right? And there's actually something very beautiful about what she says with that. But again, the idea here is it's not like God, Christ isn't trying to specify a gender. Anyways, so the old, right, was don't commit adultery. Again, we said he tells us something and then he elevates it. The old was don't commit adultery. Basically, it was given as a law to not partake in sexual relationships with those you're not married to. And now Christ is elevating this commandment after he sets the baseline. He's like, okay, we all agree that it's wrong to sleep with a person that you're not married to. We all know that. Now he says, it's not only about doing the physical act, but it's about committing the act mentally in your heart. Then you have committed adultery, right? So if you look at lusts and you don't sleep with them, so if you have the look of lust and you don't do the physical act, you're still considered an adulterer. And this is so huge in our culture, like, sorry to go there, but it is because so many people will be like, I'm still a virgin. I didn't go to third base or whatever, right? I'm still a virgin, right? But Christ, again, that makes you a Pharisee. If you view the law that way, I'm still a virgin because blank. But Christ is saying, no, 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 there's that, that's, we're not living by the letter, right? But if you've done it mentally, if you've done it in your heart, you are not a virgin. You are an adulterer. That's what he's saying, right? To make it in plain English for us. Right? So again, the issue with the adultery is it makes you not pure. That's what it does. Right? So physically or mentally or in the heart, the effect is impurity. So it doesn't matter in which, in which way it entered. Right? That's why he's saying it's the same thing as the physical. The issue is that it added impurity. And that's going to affect you and make you not pure. Right? And this is why it doesn't matter if it's physical or not. So again, the issue here is not a thought that enters your mind. And this is something we often have an issue understanding. We think if you have the thought, it means sin. But pay attention to this. The issue is not to have the thought. The thought that enters your mind isn't the issue. The issue is when it enters the heart. Right? That means once you saw something with your eyes or you heard something that led to a thought, again, it's still not sin there. Right? That led to a thought of lust. That's not a sin. But once you entertain the thought and you look at the thought and you think more about it willingly, right? Then it means it's entered your heart, right? Now you're thinking about another person with the sole purpose of lusting. Because first it came and now you're like, no, I'm going to entertain that. And my sole purpose is to lust. And this is when it becomes an issue. One of, I once, one time learned um, from, from a monk, he taught, he taught me about the mind in general. And he talked about how I want you to think of your mind as a living room with a door, right? And he said, that door is open. 
And he said people could come in and come out of that door. It's, and it's at their own will. They could come in and come out. You, there's no door. There's no like physical door. There's an opening. So he's like, he's like, if it enters, no big deal. If it exits, no big deal. But when it becomes sin is when you look at the person or the thought that has entered and said, come sit down into the living room. Now you've entertained it. Now you've said, here's the thought. I've, I've acknowledged that it's entered. I want to continue. Let's have it. Let's have shay. Let's, let's sit together and, and talk. That's when it becomes sin. Right? So the issue here again is not that it enters the mind. Now, if we get in the habit of looking, even if at first you do have the power to refrain from the evil, by continuous looking, you build up a fire in you. So again, this is the issue. We often think, oh, no big deal. Like the look isn't a big deal. But no, even if, even if in the beginning you have the power to refrain from going further, right? It builds up a fire in you. And eventually you will get burned. And this is why St. John Chrysostom, he's like, he's like, nobody should think they have more self-control than another human being, right? He says, we're all sexual beings and it's part of our disease. So for someone to somehow convince themselves, I don't get affected by blank, it just means you don't know yourself, right? That's all it means. So don't fool yourself. Again, God is removing in here the license to look. We, we give ourselves license to look, right? He's removing that. Right? That look of life, he's removing that from the start. Right? Even before the act. That way he's protecting us from the act as well. By removing, by removing the first part. Right? Okay. So, needless to say, be careful. Right? Be, be careful. Like, be careful and don't, and don't get caught up in thinking that it's not a big deal. Right? We are sexual like beings. We need boundaries. We do. Right? There has to be boundaries. Right? Um, though, like... It's not, it's, not, it's not as easy as you think, right? We need boundaries. Verse 29 to 30. If your right eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out and throw it away from you. Indeed, it is more profitable for you that one of your members should perish than your whole body be cast into Gehenna or hell. If your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away from you. It's more profitable for you that one of your members should perish than your whole body be cast into Gehenna. So, it's very clear, especially when you read the fathers on this, like all of them, they all are very clear that this was not in the literal sense. The law is always spiritual, as St. Paul says. The law is spiritual, right? Or else, if you think about it, Christ wouldn't have specified the right eye. If he meant literally, I could see without my right eye. I could see with my left eye, right? So it doesn't make a difference that I pluck the right eye out, right? There's nothing sinister more about my right eye than my left eye. Right? In that case, he would have said, pluck out both of your eyes. So again, the idea here isn't about one, like one eye doesn't see a thing and the other eye another. So he's, he's, there's something specific he's trying to tell us here. But something to think about before we get into exactly what he's trying to say. He's also kind of showing us how serious sin is. Right? How serious it is to be spiritually unhealthy. He's showing us that. Right? Christ is saying... It is more important to be in the image and likeness of God than to be physically intact. He is saying that, right? He's saying we should always care about the inside. Think about it. If you have a car, right? It's a lot better to have everything under the hood working and a few scratches on the door than for the car to look sleek and shiny and nice, but everything under the hood not working, 
has no function, right? But we don't look that way. If we see a car on the outside parked, well, that's a nice working car. Nobody thinks what's happening on the inside, right? And that becomes the issue with us, right? Is, is because nothing on the outside is occurring to us when we sin, we're not realizing the damage that we're doing. Like, I, I, like think about this. If, how much more would you prevent yourself from sinning if every time you sinned, you lost an eye? Like if every time you willingly chose to sin, you just lost a fingernail. We would probably prevent ourselves from sinning a lot more than we do. Right? And it shows us that we actually do care about the external more. Because every time I sin, I am creating much damage to my spirit. In the same way as something physically occurring. But because I don't see it with my physical eyes, somehow it's okay. Somehow I give myself license to do that. Right? Again, there's seriousness about this. We should care way much more about the health of our spirit. But what is Christ actually commanding here? The fathers are very clear that Christ is speaking about plucking specific friendships or relationships that are close to us when leading to sin. And I'll explain why. Has anyone heard the saying of, this person is like my second set of eyes? Right? What does that usually mean? It means this person is so close to me that they see everything that I see. Or they always got my back. Right? Some other people will say, this is my right hand man. That means... This is the closest person that could possibly be to me. And what is Christ saying? Pluck out the right hand. Tear off the right hand. So what's happening here is saying, the friendships and the relationships that we have that are our right-hand men, right? Our goal, our soul sister, our go-tos, right? Whoever those people are. If those people are that close, but they're leading you to sinning, he's saying, cut them out. That's harsh. He's saying, I want you to cut those affectionate relationships that are hard to cut out, for the sake of your spirit. The health of your spirit matters more. The health of your spirit matters more than keeping that friendship that's damaging your spirit, but your external is very happy. Right? Again, these are the members that he's saying to pluck out. Because they're a cause of sin. Right? He's speaking about the people near to us. Somebody as close to me as my eye. That's what's happened here. Verse 31 to 32. Divorce. It was also said, whoever shall divorce his wife... Let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that whoever divorces his wife, except for the cause of sexual immorality, makes her an adulteress. And whoever marries a woman put away in this manner commits adultery. So again, we see the elevation. In the law, in Deuteronomy, there was a law that if a man just hated his wife for any reason, he was able to cast her out and bring home another woman. That was a law. Instead of it just being at random. That, there was a law there. And again, you might ask, how in the world is that love? Right? You'll understand here, right? You couldn't just do this at random because of this law. You couldn't just be like, I don't want you, come here. Right? But he gave them a written document first. Right? He's telling them, I want you to have a written document. Again, clearly, we see a flaw with this, obviously. But at least... God is teaching them, you can't just bring home 20 women, right? At least the idea of marriage is being instilled in their mind from young age. He's saying, look, you're married to this person who lives in your house. If you're angry with them, don't murder them. Just tell them to leave. It's better for you to kick them out than to murder them, right? Now that you've told them to leave, 
bring in one another. That way there's at least one at a time. Right? So you see, again, that was, clearly that's not perfection. But he's, he's raising them. He's teaching them like children. Again, don't look at the letter of the law right now. Look at the spiritual idea. At least the idea of marriage is being instilled, right? Of just having one at a time. Again, he's teaching them in their infancy. Because eventually, the goal is to just have one. And to not divorce at all. And the reason God is allowing this now, like I said, because if a man felt stuck living with a woman that he hated, it's better to cast her out, like I said, than for it to get so bad and so angry and keep putting up with it where they would just kill them. And if you think about the world of the Jews, they had no issue killing prophets. These were men. And in their society, as we know, the women and the children were the lesser. Obviously, that's flawed, but that's how they thought. So God is like, okay, you guys are all super diseased, and you have no issue killing my prophets. How much more will you have an issue killing women? Right? So he's like, okay, let's for now just kick them out, bring in another. Because you guys are clearly idiots. Right? So the Jews at this time, again, they had no issue doing that. So it's not far-fetched. Okay? Now... By, that, by God doing that, he's allowing the lesser evil, in a sense, to prevent the greater one. Right? The killing is obviously the lesser evil, in a sense. What's nice about this is Jesus answers this question directly. When the Pharisees come up to him and they say, Why did Moses command us to give our wife a bill of divorce and send her away? So they, they literally ask Jesus this question. What does Jesus respond? Because of the hardness of your hearts. Moses allowed you divorce to divorce your wives. He's like, because you guys were hard of heart, Moses allowed you to, to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it had not been so. So it was because of their infantile weakness that God gave the law. That's what he's saying here. That's what Jesus Christ is specifically answering. Because of your infantile weakness, your hardness of hearts. But the perfection isn't that. The perfection is love. Something very interesting here. Is Christ, in a sense, gave two exceptions to this law. If we pay attention to the words, right? The exception to allowing divorce here was fornication or adultery. That's what he's saying, right? And I'm, I'm going to kind of meditate with you here. And actually, this is why he doesn't allow the remarriage. Because at that point, the point of it wasn't to divorce for the sake of desire. The idea was supposed to be about the anger and, 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 and not murdering. But we see that God, he doesn't want to see divorce, Clearly, he said that wasn't the perfection, but he allowed it because the hardness of the heart. But what's happening here right now, specifically, he's actually giving us an exception. When he says, if it's for fornication or adultery, you can divorce. The reason for this, in a sense, like he's actually saying, like, I understand how difficult that is. Right. And I'm giving you a chance for comfort here. Like, I'm actually giving you a chance for comfort to be cheated on. If you're cheated on, he's giving you a chance, literally, for all of us. Yet God himself, this is where the meditative part, he actually doesn't play by this exception. We, as his spouse, cheated on him left and right for all of generations. And he never divorced us. Right? So perfection is clear from the idea of God. Divorce isn't perfection in this idea. But he's actually, because of, because of love, he's actually giving us an exception here. Right? He stayed married to us even when we cheated on him. And this is actually why St. John Chrysostom says, he says perfection is not to divorce even if cheated on. Right? He says God is still giving a command because of human weakness. Right? So we see even this one specifically, he's giving this command. Verse 33. 
Again, you have heard that it was said to the people a long time ago, you shall not swear falsely. You must fulfill your vows to the Lord. But I tell you, do not swear at all, neither by heaven, for it is the throne of God, nor by the earth, for it is the footstool of his feet, nor by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Do not even swear by your head, because you cannot make a single hair white or black. Instead, let your yes be yes and your no, no. Whatever goes beyond these is from the evil one. So the main issue here, the first one, the law of the old was, don't, you, they used to say, don't swear falsely. Right? What that simply means is, don't make a false statement as if it was true. Right? Don't say something false pretending like it's true. Now, so that's swearing falsely. Plain swearing is to make a statement that something is true by adding a grand statement to prove the truth. Again, the, the issue with this, the issue with the swearing is to not add the grand statements. That's what he's trying to actually say here. Don't add grand statements just to prove that you're telling the truth. Because you can't, you can just make a true statement. Like you don't have to add something to make it true. Just make a true statement, right? But by us adding grand statements in our culture, we say, I swear, right? Or on God or in Arabic, Wallahi. Right? These are the things that we say. Or, or I promise. Again, people, for when I was younger, it was like, no, don't say I swear, but say I promise. There's no difference. Right? The idea here is don't add an extra fluff to make your statement more true. It's not about the word. Again, he's not telling, it's not the letter of the law. The issue isn't to say the word swear. That's not the issue. Or else he wouldn't have said it. Right? The issue is simply don't add a grandiose statement to make your statement more true. It's supposed to just be true, right? So what does it mean though? If I have to add something, if I have to swear to add this extra statement to assure to somebody that it's true, what does it, no what does it mean about my normal statements? They're all lies. And at this moment when I magically use this statement of I swear, now I'm telling the truth. But everything else I say is, is a lie. That's what it means. So what Christ is trying to prevent here is I want your words to just be normal. Like, use your words properly. Speak the truth, always. If you're swearing, if you're adding these fluffy words, it means you're normally lying. And that's the issue with this, right? So don't add extra statements, right? Because your normal statements need to be true. And that is why he follows this up by saying, let your yes be yes and your no, no. To basically say, just say what you need to say, let your word be truth always. That's all he's saying. Let your yes always be your yes and your no always be your no. Don't add the extra stuff. The issue with the extra stuff, as I said, it's belittling our words. And this becomes a huge problem in our world. We're belittling our speech. It belittles the integrity of our normal words. When the reality is, my simple language should just be true. Without needing an addition to prove my truthness. And that, that is why he's giving this commandment. So again, there would be no need to swear if I always told the truth. So realize when you start to use that word, I swear, or, or adding anything, or like, I'm dead serious, or on my mom's grave, or on this. When you start to add those, you're saying, I normally lie. And that becomes the issue. And our need to swear comes from wanting to persuade someone. That's why we do it, right? We need to, we need to persuade somebody. That means we're either lying or we're either trying to be evil. Right? And that becomes the issue.
38, about retaliation. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, do not resist one who is evil. But whoever strikes you on your right cheek, present the other cheek as well. Again, we see an elevation. Most people look at the old law and think, how in the world is God giving that commandment? Like in our minds, like, there's no way that came from God, right? How is that, if the law is love, how is that supposed to be love? How is an eye for an eye love? Again, we said this earlier. If somebody punches you, the idea here is, for now, punch back, right? This indeed is a level of love. Why? Because you are denying your will from murdering. Again, that's why we say what love is. We say love is self-denial, right? Because I'm denying something in me that is an act of love. Even though I'm punching the person, it could be an act of love because I'm denying my will from murdering them, right? So this is why we should understand it helps us with judging as well. Because if you see a man yelling at his child, for example, he might be denying his will from hitting him. And you look at that and say, what an evil man for yelling at his kid. The reality is he could be showing love by not hitting his child in public. So again, it helps us with our judgment as well. By, by applying this to ourselves and applying it to others, it helps us with judgment. So again, Christ is elevating this law. He's saying rather than... Rather it being punch for punch, one for one, now what I want you to do, and this is where our elevation needs to be, I want you to give one and another. Right? Again, Christ could have just said, if you think about it, don't retaliate. He could have said that. Somebody slaps you, just don't retaliate. But what is he saying? He's not saying don't nothing. He's saying take it a step further. Self-deny at a step further. Right? Get past this and say Give them one for another, right? In our culture, this eye for eye is actually not far from us. Today in our society, we hear, get your way. Get yours and step over anyone in your way, right? We say it's a dog-eat-dog world. That's, that's what we, the culture, we're embedded in, right? We're embedded in this society that encourages us to compete and defeat anyone in our way to success, to be at the top. Right? And to put a strong resistance towards anyone trying to stop us. That's what we're taught. And this is clearly not the gospel. Right? It's clearly not our design. It's clearly not our image, our function. Right? Don't use violence or force if someone uses it towards you. Right? Just allow them. And of course, Christ didn't just say these words. We see in his life he did them. All of these commandments... Right? Christ didn't just sit there on his gold throne and say, do this, do this, do this. No, he became man and fulfilled all this in his person. Right? One of the desert fathers, to show you what this looks like practically, practically, he was being robbed. He was in his cell and a bunch of people came in and they were robbing him. So what did he do? He knelt in the corner and he prayed to hide from them. And he realized after they left that they didn't take his walking staff. So he runs out after them with his staff in the hands and says, you guys forgot my stick. Right? It sounds crazy to us. They just robbed him. And he's saying, you guys forgot my stick. Again, this is literally what this looks like in, in a real way. Right? And they were actually moved by love because of that. And they returned the things. Right? And this is what Christ is teaching here. No longer, for us who have the spirit dwelling in us, no longer retaliate with evil when we're beheld with evil. Right? But now we retaliate with love. Right? This is how we return to our nature. This is how we return to being in the image and likeness of God. No longer is it evil for evil. Now it's 
there's the fire, let's put it out with love. Think about this in every action that we do, right? Put it out with love. And this applies with words as well, not just physical things, right? Our words are weapons. Our words are blows to one another. So if somebody slaps you in the face with an insult, don't retaliate with an insult, right? But offer your other cheek, right? So what that means is accept the insult and find truth in it, like we said earlier, and then offer your other cheek means be ready to hear another insult and find truth in that insult as well. Accept the next insult and find truth in that insult. That's what giving the other cheek is when it comes to, to, a wor- to wordly slaps. Verse 40 to 42. If anyone sues you to take away your tunic, let them have your cloak also. Whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to whoever asks you and, to den- and do not deny whoever desires to borrow from you. Again, the idea here, very clearly, we all freely receive. Whatever we have, we freely received it. So we should be able to freely give it, right? When we are asked, we ought to just give, right? Without a calculation, without a measurement, if the person really needs it, right? Again, Christ is clearly saying your job is not to judge if the person is selfish, if the person is fake, if the person is a con. Clearly, he's not saying that. If you're asked, just give it. Christ never spoke that way, right? Because if you look at this, he's actually saying, if a person's coming to try to sue you, or that clearly means they have a malicious intention, right? A person's coming to sue you, or another person is saying, if a person compels you to do something, right? And to that person, what is Christ saying? Give, even if they have a malicious intention. Right? Again, there's no calculation. There's no judgment before the giving. Because if there was, if Christ wanted us to do that, we would never give. Right? Because it would never make sense, according to the worldly wisdom or the worldly logic, to ever try to give to a person who's trying to harm me or force me to do something. That doesn't make sense at all in our worldly logic. But Christ is saying, don't calculate that. Right? But the beauty of this is, is Christ is not even saying, give what they asked you. Again, we see the elevation to the perfection here, right? He's saying, give that and more. Because honestly, if you think about it, people are usually shy to ask for more and they will hold back, right? They'll hold back and they will ask for less when really they would like more, right? And Christ is showing this example very clearly. He's saying, if you, he says a cloak and the tunic. A tunic is worn under a cloak. A cloak is like the balto, like the big one, you know what I mean? Like the big thing on the top, right? The, the tunic is like the under, the, the, like the, the normal t-shirt in a sense, right? The cloak is the heavy one. So he's saying this cold person, out of being desperate, is asking you for the piece of clothing that's actually going to make them less warm. The, 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 the tunic. They're not saying, give me your cloak. I'm asking for the tunic. Right? And Christ is saying, don't just give them that one, give them the cloak as well. Right? And actually, St. John Chrysostom says something funny. He's like, even if you end up being naked, you return to being in the garden with Adam and Eve in true perfection. Right? So it's, it's, it's just kind of funny how he says that. But anyways, if you think about it now, a person may ask you, for example, give me, I just need 30 minutes of your time to help me move like these boxes or something. Right? The reality is they probably want you to be there until they're done with the job. But they're, they're out of being shy, out of being nice, are saying, just give me 30 minutes of your time, right? So Christ is saying, give them those 30 minutes and then be with them until the job is done. That's what he's saying. That's how it looks like practically in our life, right? A friend e- sees you eating your food and they say, wow, man, that looks good. Can I have a bite? 
What does that mean? You give them the bite and the whole burrito, right? You give them the whole thing and then you go buy another one, right? Obviously, like they will say, no, no, no. But like, again, that, the heart needs to be there, right? The heart needs to be there. So what we should be doing is sparing our brothers and our sisters the embarrassment of having to ask us more. That's how you should think of it, right? Let's just give them more without even being asked now, right? He didn't ask for the cloak, but Christ is saying, give it without being asked. So this means we actually need to be attentive to our surroundings, right? We actually have to see what's going on around us. Where can I actually help? Christ is not saying, wait for someone to ask you, come do the dishes. Christ is not saying, wait for somebody to say, take out this, take or do this. He's saying, you look and give before being asked to save them from the embarrassment of asking. Again, the idea with all of this, self-denial, right? Deny yourself and be affected by it, right? Be cold for the cold person. Be hungry for the hungry person. Again, if you have $100, giving a dollar doesn't do much to you. It might do much to them, but that's not, where, that's not the issue. The, the point is self-denial. That dollar doesn't deny anything, right? But if you have three and you give a dollar, you've denied something, right? It's made a bigger effect on you. And that's what Christ wants us to do, right? He's saying, I want you to, to, to be cold. I want you to be hungry. I want you to give yourself. That is love, right? To deny your will for the sake of others. Giving should have an effect on us. The last few verses, verse 43. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, pray for those who mistreat you and persecute you, so that you may be children of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes the sun to rise on the evil and the good, and he sends rain on the just and the unjust. Love your neighbor. That's supposed to be the minimum. Right? I don't think we even do that. Right? At least... He's saying, at least love your community. Love the people who surround you. At least. At least love your families. At least love your, like your, your, your actual neighbors. The people who live with you normally. But what does Christ do? So again, that's supposed to be the syllabus, guys. That's supposed to be the, the alphabet. But what is Christ doing? He's elevating this and saying, love your neighbor should be elementary school level. Now I want you to love your enemies. Who you used to be commanded to hate. And of course, hate just means to not choose. Right? It's, not, not, it's not about the emotional despising. Right? He's saying choose those who you do not normally choose. Right? I want you to love those people. Right? Not just those who you don't associate with. That's not what he's saying here. He's saying the ones who are specifically against you. Again, the elevation to the max. Right? Again, practically, our neighbor, they usually have similar lives to me. Right? That's why they're our neighbors, right? We have so many things in common, right? So it should be very easy for us to figure out how I could love them. All I have to do is look at my own life. What would I like to be done to me? I could do to them. That's my neighbor. We want the same stuff. We're in the same community. We're in the same place. We do the same stuff. But the enemies, that's a little bit more tricky. Why? Because again, they are not in your same situation. They're actually against you, right? So what you have to do is get into their shoes, think about their lifestyle, think about what happens in them and find a way to love them. Again, it might be a little bit more tricky, but that's the elevation we're going to now. Again, this must be understood. To love is not a feeling. Love is not a feeling, because feelings change, right? Love is not a mindset either, right? But to love is to give yourself, to deny yourself, right? That's why, and that's what I'm being asked for, for my enemy right now. 
He's not saying you should be so affectionately attached to the enemy that you want to give him a hug and a kiss. That's not what he's saying. He's saying it's not about this emotional attachment, the same way you have with a sibling or friend. But what he's saying is here, in to your enemy, you should be willing to give yourself, to deny yourself, right? If, if they are in need, you should be willing to deny your will to, to help them with that. That's what love is. It's not about like the emotions, right? Again, that's a type of love. But that's not the love that is the cross, right? That's not emotional, right? That is the giving of the self. That's what the Trinity does, the giving of the self. So, St. John Chrysostom goes through nine steps of how this elevation started from elementary school to college, in a sense. First off, if, when he goes through the whole thing. If you, start, if you think about it, he first said, don't begin with injustice, right? So don't kill when somebody slaps you. That's where we started. Then it's equal retaliation, slap for slap, right? Then refuse to respond to the one who tries to harm us, but stay quiet. So first, again, it was injustice, then it was equal, then it was, okay, at least res- don't respond. Right? So first one was punch for punch. This one's like, don't retaliate, just stay neutral, right? Fourth, he says, offer to suffer for others, right? Give more than the person who wrongs you wants. Again, so now it's an addition. It's not just n- neutral, it's I've now given something. Six. Refuse to hate slash resist the person who wronged you. So now this is where we get into the elders teaching of the soul's impassibility. Where it's, it's no longer about the external, but now he's saying, no, I want even the heart, right? To, to not resist that person who wronged you. Seven is to love the person, which is to give yourself, right? Eight is to do good to them, right? Like actually do good for them, right? Like, like think about that. Like, how can I actually do good for those who I don't really like or who are my enemies? And the ninth, which is the max, entreat God himself on their behalf, right? So he went from killing when a person slaps me to now asking God to be with them. Again, that's the highest thing you could do for somebody. This is a huge elevation that Christ is giving us. Christ started at the elementary school and now we're, we're at true perfection. And this is why he says... We become children of the Father, right? To love makes us children of God. That, the nature of God is love. We say God is love. That's His nature, right? To share with His DNA it must be love. So unless you give yourself, unless you deny your will, you can't be children of God because that is His DNA. That what's, that's what makes you His child. Pay attention to this idea of this, this where, where He's saying like... Um, um, he makes the sun rise on the evil and the just, and he does good, and he sends rain on those who are just and unjust. Look at the eyes of God. For God, there's no such thing as an enemy. There's no such thing as a persecutor, right? And there's no such thing as a neighbor, right? For God, they're all his children, right? That's why he's sending rain on the just and the unjust, because there's no such thing as just or unjust in his mind, right? In the eyes of God, they are all his own, right? He isn't partial because he doesn't even see them as different, right? It's not about, I know those, that one's better than that one. No, he actually doesn't see them as different, right? So the idea here is, we have to put on these eyes, put on these eyes of God, right? Don't be partial in the way you view people, right? 
We're not trying, like I'm, there was a time in the gospel where they went up to Christ and said, hey, you need to heal this person because his son, or you need to heal this person's son. Why? Because he built us our temple. He is worthy. That's, God, Christ doesn't need that convincing. He didn't, he didn't see worthy or unworthy. Have those eyes, right? Actually have those eyes. Like when you see all humans, see them all as children of God. There's no poor, there's no rich, there's no, there's no strong, there's no weak, there's no socially better or not, right? Have that in your mind only. And this is what Christ is telling us. He's like, there's no famous people or rich people, right? For those type of people, just, just give, right? Give them, give them always. And to end it, these last two verses. And so if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. If you greet your brother or your friends, what more have you done than them? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. Right? So he's literally saying, like, if you love a person who loves you, you're not doing anything. They love you. So it's very easy to love them back. Right? He's saying, it's very, even the tax collectors do this. It's easy. But he's saying, I want you to go beyond this. Love the people who don't love you. Right? And same thing with greetings. Like, I, like take this literally. Like, do I only say hi to my friends when I enter a room? Do I only say hi to the people that I know? Do I only say hi to the people that I like? Do I only greet those people? He's like, you, you've only done what the tax collectors do. They greet the people that they know. It's not a big deal. Right? Because if you love someone who loves you, it's actually a selfish love. Because you've received love, you're like, okay, I'll give it. But to, not, to love a person who doesn't love you, that's true love. Because there's, no, there's nothing you've received. Right? And the same thing with the greetings. Right? Therefore, be perfect just as your Father in heaven is perfect. Very quickly, perfection does not mean not to sin. This is often what we have in our minds. We think it's impossible to be perfect. Why would Christ ask us to be perfect if all of us have to sin? A baby, when it's born, right, we wouldn't call that perfect, even though they haven't sinned necessarily. Right? But perfection, right, and this is why we call some of the saints perfected in the faith, right? St. John says, perfection is to pray for those who wrong you, right? That last elevation of the law, right? So perfection is to do everything that we talked about here today, right? Perfection is to live the law. It's the positive side of it. It's not to avoid sin. We have to get that out of our minds. The goal isn't to avoid sin. The goal, the goal is to do the goodness, to do the love, to give the self, right? And that's, that is perfection, right? It's not about avoiding the sin. Obviously, that comes with doing the good naturally, but that's why we don't call babies perfect. We call saints perfect. Because they have done this. They've lived this. If you look at the life of Baba Krulus, literally, like I've done this before where I've looked at Matthew 5-7 through and I found a story in his life for every verse here. Because this is what he lived. This is why he was a saint. Not because he was casting out miracles and, and doing miracles. And, and, and casting out demons and doing miracles. The idea is you need to live this. That's perfection. Right? So that should be something that we do in our lives, is, is read this often, have this in our minds, let it come to our minds when we live about our day and, and truly give ourselves for one another. And glory be to God forevermore.